Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week, we're remembering BAMF dolls and taking on the government and battling genetic destabilization by lifting lots of weights in our undies in Excalibur number 64, Ascension. Excalibur 64 was originally published in April of 1993, and the creative team is Alan Davis on writing and pencils, Mark Farmer on inks, Glynis Oliver on colors, Chris Eliopoulos on letters, and Terry Cavanaugh and Mark Powers on editing. Welcome back for the penultimate issue of the Cloud Nine Saga, in which we find a few answers and a bunch more questions. We'll kick things off as usual by introducing our genetically stable team. I am Dr. Anna Papard. I write and talk about sex and gender and superheroes and spies and wrestling and con artists and whatever else strikes my fancy. I do these things in academic places and popular ones, including Comic Sex F, where I'm currently editing a weekly series called Our Best X-Men Stories, which I think our listeners would enjoy. I'll keep reminding you to check it out. I also continue to hustle as Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR mm. manager. My people sent Alan Davis a lovely fruit basket to thank him for his sound fan service, placing Mr. Wagner in his underwear for a good portion of this issue. <laughs> I am joined, as always, by Mav. Please reintroduce yourself. Uh, I can't. No, that was funny. <laughs> I, I, I don't know why I wasn't anticipating that. Um <laughs> I originally Hello. wrote that Kurt was in his underwear for the entire issue because that's how it was in my mind. And when I reread it, I was like, oh, it's not the whole issue. No, it's not I need the to... whole issue, but yeah. it, it, is a, it, it is significant. I did. And I, I assumed we were going to talk about that today, but, you know, <laughs> I just wasn't expecting it just at, right at this moment. Um, hi, my name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav. Uh, I am the co-host of this show and another one called Vox Popcast. I am a lecturer at University of Pittsburgh where I teach um, things about composition and literature and pop culture and digital design and a lot of stuff. I do a lot of weird stuff now. It's weird because I started that job 
either depending on when this episode comes out either like basically last week or next week (laughs) (laughs) but i haven't started it yet in real life because of podcast time travel so i'm like sort of working on a syllabus right now and figuring out what exactly (laughs) am i teaching right now so so that's so that's where we where we actually are in real life but beyond that i was gonna do like a whole thing that i had planned where my spirit being just decided to come out of my body and then leave me stranded in space never to be mentioned again but um, but then you just kind of make me laugh too much, and I'm just going to abandon that because this is better. So hi everybody. Thank you for that, um, Andrew. Please remind us of your exploits. Hello, I'm Dr. J. Andrew Deman. I am a lecturer at St. Jerome's University and the project lead for the Claremont Run for like one week. <laughs> And then it's over uh, and moving on to sequential scholars. Uh, and yeah, I'm doing pretty good this week. I'm ready for the Phoenix stuff to be like resolved. And yeah. I feel like the ending splash page is very much promising that this time. So maybe we can finally put that to rest. And then yeah. it will put it to rest. And then like no one will ever retcon Phoenix ever again in the rest of Marvel comics. That's how that's going to work. Right. And we'll just have Britannic and we'll be great. Oh, oh God. God, I was just... oh, God. <laughs> totally worth it. I was really. The first issue of like the Judgment Day event, like this week, when this episode comes out, it'll be like three weeks later, but it came out this week when we're recording. And there was the thing with like Echo is the Phoenix now, and she just like zooms in, and Scott's yeah. like, Was that the Phoenix gene? And she's like, I don't know, I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's awesome. kind of a good little aside of like, I don't want to deal with this, I don't care, we're acknowledging it, but let's move on. I, anyway. I am so against just I am so against yeah, the no, no. there's a whole there's a whole just, thing there's a lot and not there. For, and not for X-Men reasons for no for nothing having to do with X-Men mm-hmm. but it's that's a conversation for another time it is it's a total, whole thing it's a whole thing <laughs> anyway yeah I should be hyping sequential scholars in my intros now too. go follow sequ- sequential scholars Andrew and I are doing awesome things over there yeah. I need to be remembering to do that um, anyway let's get to our guests and get to our conversation about this issue the team is joined this week by a multi-talented guest hailing from my alma mater though we sadly didn't meet at that time the pod is all in a tizzy to welcome Allison Humphrey. Welcome, Allison. Thank you so much. It's fabulous to be here. So excited to chat with you. I saw you follow the podcast and saw what you do for your research. And then it was like York University, which is where I did my PhD. Um, So I will tell our listeners a little bit more about you and we'll get to chatting. Alison Humphrey is a Vanier Scholar and PhD candidate in cinema and media arts at York University, where she plays with story across drama, digital media and education. Since starting out as an intern at Marvel Comics, her career has included directing Shakespeare, writing transmedia television and producing an early alternate reality game for sci-fi author Doug. Adams' Starship Titanic. Allison has directed numerous experiments with live animated mocap theater and interactive narrative, leading to her current research focus on horseplay, pedagogy, and participatory storytelling. Her research creation doctoral project, Shadowpox, is a citizen science fiction story world co-created with young people on three continents, imagining immunization through a superhero metaphor. That is so much stuff, and I want to talk to you about all of it but let's start out with your comics origin story because i'm very curious to hear about about that as well because you talked about this a little bit about you having sort of i think a lifelong affection for x-men comics so yeah tell us about it what's what's your kind of history with comics allison uh, well, I would say like my very, very first encounter with superheroes was uh, the Super Friends. Um, oh, my God. Know, yeah. Way back in the 70s. I was just the right age to start watching it when oh, it first broadcast. What, what was your uh, first, totally first season? Totally going to derail the show. What, what was yes. your first season? What, 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 it was what, the what, first season. 
No, oh, oh, so you, so you're Wendy and Marvin kind of girl. I was before Wonder Twins. Uh, oh yes, although... Wendy and Marvin Wonder Dog. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, okay. exactly. I, like, I'm sure we have like lots of like millennial listeners going, "What the hell are they talking about?" Okay, <laughs> <laughs> they will have heard Wonder Twin powers activate. I am sure of it. Right, Just, but like, Wendy, Marvin, and Wonder Dog. Oh my God, so amazing. <laughs> we, but actually, uh, Wendy and Marvin were not the Wonder Twins. No, they no, Wendy, Marvin, and Wonder Dog. Before, no, that's, yeah, that's what I mean. They're, and then they, they're the they original disappeared because yes. they weren't cool enough they're, i guess they're well their 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 disappearance is explained in the in the super friends comic book that comes out to bridge <sighs> the gap between the wendy and marvin season and the wonder Twins. i know way too much about this this is why i'm like so Fabulous. excited and people are like what are you talking about so just for a little background because for our listeners when they started the super friends cartoon they decided well we want kids to watch this how are we going to get kids to watch superheroes what if kids don't like superheroes i know i know it was the 70s but what if kids don't like superheroes and they got they said well you know what's popular scooby-doo so let's just insert scooby-doo into the super friends now we don't own the rights to scooby-doo so we're just gonna make our own we're just gonna have a dog and like two teenagers that are just hanging out with superman and batman and wonder woman and no one has a problem with it no one questions it they're going off on adventures fighting supervillains, and then there's these two kids and a dog there do they have powers no <laughs> they're just there <laughs> <laughs> so good sorry <laughs> i was just terribly excited by that <laughs> no it's fabulous i i actually now have to go and track down the comic you mentioned because of course i was um way too young at the time to be to be buying my own comics but yeah i think like what what i loved about the super friends was that it was an entity that it was like a group a team and i i sort of trace my interest in in superheroes all the way since then i tend not to be as interested in individual heroes i'm curious about the team and like the team dynamics and when i kind of came back around to superheroes when i started reading the x-men in i think it was like 1981 it was the team aspect of it as well that really fascinated me because i was never really good at like social dynamics and so what you do is you watch these you know you watch the cartoon or you read this comic and you you see people interacting and it's kind of like this really schematic color-coded explanation of interpersonal dynamics and so i think like didn't think about it th this way at the time but i you know, looking back at that um it was really uh, attractive to me quite apart from you know obviously all the stuff about being an outsider and the the thing that attracts most people to the x-men which is that you know the mutant metaphor and and sort of the idea of of belonging to people who don't belong and finding oh. your finding your group yeah i've i've heard that and i've definitely experienced that before at various ages too because really when i got really into superhero comics like i, I read them a little bit growing up but just access was an issue so i didn't really get into them into my you know early to mid 20s and even then just sort of looking for direction in my life and feeling a little bit directionless sort of that idea of the shared universe and sort of the mental experiments that you do with what does power mean and what does personality mean what does identity mean and all these interactions between the characters that was such a useful frame to ground me at a time when I really needed it and I still kind of feel that with those universes and more broadly you know fiction in general is is like thought experiments you know what of happens course. if someone behaves this way what happens if you make this choice how you know what are the potential um, knock-on effects from your own decisions or you know what do you do if somebody else makes makes a choice that you don't agree with all yeah of, of course kind of turn to page 42 yeah <laughs> what, sorry what was that <laughs> oh, if yeah. you'd like to drink the potion turn to page 42 <laughs> <laughs> it's your own adventure i actually taught those in in one of my weeks of, of a class earlier this this year i taught a whole new generation about choose your own adventure and we will be reading them in my class this fall 
I was going to say, I know Mav's been planning to do that as well. You guys are going to want to chat about that yes, too. Yes. <laughs> yes, we are literally doing that this fall in my class. I'm actually teaching uh, the same course again. So I'm teaching writing for oh, games cool. and interactive media. Oh, um, yeah. We should definitely talk about that. Yes. Uh, oh you know, I, I mean, I'm going to derail the, the entire show today. Like, we're going to we're going to talk about Wonder Twins. We're going to talk about Wendy and Marvin. We're going to talk about um, Choose Your Own Adventure. Oh, yeah. There's a comic too. Whatever. No, we're going to talk about Kurt lifting weights in his underwear. We're getting to it. <laughs> yes, the important stuff. Priorities. So, Allison, I really want to hear more about your work. Everything in your bio was awesome. So, I want to hear a little bit more about your journey and like how superheroes and science factor into your work. So, yeah, like tell us, I don't know, however you want to approach that question. If you want to talk about the Shadowpox project and kind of what motivated you to sort of incorporate superhero metaphors there, or just if you want to talk to us a little bit about the philosophy of your work, like tell our listeners a little bit more about specifically what you get up to. Yeah, well, I could sort of start out with the Shadowpox project because that's what my dissertation is about. That's what I'm finishing up writing right now. And um, it's basically, <laughs> I, I invented a uh, science fictional pandemic back in uh, 2014. And, oh dear, um, yeah. was living in, in this wonderful fantasy world in which it was exciting, but not real. Um, and the blurb for Shadowpox is that it reimagines immunity as an acquired superpower, um, creating a new cognitive frame for young people to explore the concepts and conflicts surrounding immunization. So hmm. this was sort of back when and, you know, anybody who remembers the, the Disneyland measles outbreak, um, and I was sort of reading things around the way that people thought about vaccines, um, especially people who were either hesitant about vaccines, which is a, a larger group, or people who are very, very anti-vaccines, um, which is a much smaller group, but very vocal and very active, especially online. And what sort of struck me about the folks who were, who were very anti-vaccines is that there was something similar, there was like a resonance for me with the mutant metaphor mm. specifically the hated and feared by you know a world that they're sworn to protect so the idea that people hate and fear vaccines which are sworn to protect them and i was very very interested in the idea of creating a science fictional story world uh, a participatory storytelling uh, framework that especially young people could kind of embody the vaccine um, embody the the concept of uh, a vaccine not not that they are vaccinating people, but they are themselves that feared and hated or or just kind of the thing that feels uncanny because the uncanny thing about vaccines is that it's a bit of a disease that you put into your body voluntarily when you're well. Everybody's lizard brain just goes, no, that's ridiculous. I'm not doing it. Um, and then, you know, some folks can get over that initial, you know, disgust reflex, the understandable thing of like, I am not putting that stuff in my body. I don't know what it is. I don't know who you are. I, you know, it's a whole thing around trust. Um, but even underneath the trust, there's that kind of uncanniness of that concept. So it was basically sort of wondering if I could create a, a participatory story world where uh, young people can explore that and explore those feelings and explore you know, what it means to be the target of misinformation and disinformation. Whereas normally we're just sort of hearing it, you know, third hand and maybe we don't know if the misinformation is really miss or this. Yeah, it was basically kind of creating that science fictional construct as part of my research 
creation dissertation. Well, can I ask you some specific questions about, so what does it kind of look like in terms of participation? Like how specifically do people kind of participate in the project? Like what are kind of the mechanisms that you're employing there? Really good question. Yeah. So um, there has been a side thing, which is a video game, which is actually showed in a number of different art galleries. It's a full body video game um, okay. in which you are sort of fighting the virus. You know, you make a choice at the beginning of the game, whether to vaccinate or not. Um, but then what you discover is that in the process of, of fighting the disease, you're infecting other people around you. Um, so it was a very early way to kind of help people think about the fact that a vaccine is not just a decision you're making to protect yourself. It's also to prevent yourself from passing the disease along to other people. So in a way, instead of becoming the villain to whoever it is you infect, um, you become the hero because you stop the disease from getting to them. Now, that sort of video game was one branch of it, and you can actually see it online at shadowpox.org slash game, um, a sort of online version of the one that we did for in person in a gallery with you know, motion tracking and projection of these little circles of shadow on your body and all that. But what we did for, for the actual participatory storytelling was six scenes. I, I designed a six scene framework and each scene has a prompt. And so I would have like, first workshop was at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art in London. I did a workshop with Dabajmajig storytellers in Manitoulin in Northern Ontario. Um, and also Ooh, with, nice. um, yeah, um, they're fabulous. All of these groups are just fabulous folks to work with. Also with a group of peer educators at the Desmond Tutu HIV Foundation uh, Youth Center in Cape Town, South Africa. Hmm. So sort of different groups. And then I taught a course, like a 12-week uh, course at York University, which was also built around this basic six scene thing. And in each case, each participant would create a character who is a volunteer in a vaccine trial. Phase one trial, never been tested in humans before, with the idea that if you're going to be afraid of a vaccine, that's the time to be afraid because it's never been tested in humans and nobody knows what it's going to do. So the heroism of stepping up to be that volunteer is at its height. And so they they start out with scene one. The prompt is like, just tell us about what motivated you to, to volunteer. You know, what's your motive? <laughs> what's your objective? You know, somebody in your uh, life maybe uh, was either killed by shadowpox or blinded by it. Scene two, you get a, an anonymous message from who knows who telling you not to trust the vaccine, not to trust the people making it. And so your character has to decide, well, first of all, you write that message, right? So you create whatever it is. You're, in a way, your antagonist. Uh, so you created your protagonist, then you create your antagonist, and then you have to figure out how your character is going to really, what they're going to do about this, this piece of what may be information, it may be misinformation, you don't know yet. And so each of the scenes goes on from there. Um, and each time you're recording a short video of, you know, basically a video journal with your character talking to camera. Oh, that sounds awesome. There's so many interesting things that you're exploring with that. And like, yeah, I'm I'm so interested in the superhero connection that you're bringing up too. I mean, I feel like I have so many questions I want to ask you now about how superhero universes uh, do some of these themes uh, well or badly, uh, sometimes really badly. Uh, <laughs> I'd love to just spend, spend a few hours talking to you about storylines like the legacy virus and that type of thing. Oh my God, yes. But um, let me ask you one more question about it and then we'll get into more stuff about this issue in particular yeah like what does interest you about kind of if it, it does interest you about the science of superheroes like um, i'm interested 
question, sort of teasing out that connection a little bit more. I loved what you were bringing up in terms of that idea of the mutant metaphor impacting kind of your thinking here. But like, is an interest in superhero science part of what what kind of drives you to want to explore some of these topics? Absolutely. What, what's cool about superheroes and science is that that's where a lot of the public gets their yeah. kind of just, you know, osmotically absorbed sense of how science works. We have this idea and, you know, don't go down this rabbit hole, but TV Tropes is a fantastic website for all the <laughs> oh ways God. that yeah. we think yeah. about science in popular culture. <laughs> and, you know, one of them is like the evil scientist or, you know, the a lot of sort of the... Uh, really hard misinformation anti-vaccine tropes are, you know, big pharma as part of global conspiracy who are effectively supervillains trying to take over the world through, I don't know, injecting microchips or poisoning people or causing them to become infertile. All of these uh, various different fears, societal fears that we have that are in the comics or in the superhero world are embodied in supervillains. And so there's that whole aspect of it is like, what are the things that we fear? about what we're doing with science and often for very good reasons like there's tons of discussion during the pandemic about the Tuskegee study and the fact that lots of folks of color are just not keen on like new medical interventions because guess what we were not treated well and have this mistrust that is extremely well founded historically and then that you know, comes into Red, White, and Black, you know, the, the sort of Captain America story in which they basically refracted the Tuskegee study into the super soldier uh, serum being developed or redeveloped. Um, so all of those kinds of fears around science and, and fears around the things that it can do to our bodies. And those evolve with the decades. You know, we're afraid of different things now than maybe we were back in, in the 80s. But sort of there's that. And then there's also you know, the, the kind of positive side of things. So like the, the origin story and, and the way that we're using the Shadowpox metaphor is that here is your origin story of how you get the power of immunity, right? And you have to make this decision like Steve Rogers does, as opposed to, you know, Peter Parker gets bitten and it's not his choice, but Steve Rogers is a volunteer. So what is it to, to decide to step across that line into a power and into a science-induced power and to trust the person um, at the other end of the syringe. So all of that, I think, is is really fascinating, the way that superhero storytelling engages with all the different kinds of, of science that are in our world. That's just, you know, one tiny little corner of it. I haven't even touched, you know, Fantastic Four or any of that stuff. Yeah, well, maybe we'll talk about it a little bit more in conversation with this issue, because I want to talk about genetic destabilization and genetic metaphors in X-Men comics, and I feel like that will dovetail very nicely with everything you're already talking about. So let us do an issue summary and then we'll come back to this and relate it to the story at hand. I know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod. We'd never manipulate your guilt to convince you not to bust your fiance out of a stasis tube. But as always, let's start today's engagement <laughs> with a plot never summary. Say never. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Depending. <laughs> Situational. Excalibur 64 opens with Rachel Summers, the real Rachel Summers this time, reliving her life as it flashes before her eyes. Eventually, a voice speaks in her mind that emerges from her, taking the form of Jean Grey. It tells her about its true form as a force that touches every life without knowing or feeling, and that it must be so again. Meanwhile, on the south coast of England, Brian and Megan fight the cherubim. The fight winds down after Brian accidentally punches Megan, believing her to be the monstrous cyborg known as the Fury. He knocks her to the ground before 
before his vision clears and he realizes what he's done, though the fight doesn't officially end until Brian loses his powers and gets knocked unconscious. Back at Cloud Nine, Peter watches a video of Brian's capture. Peter asks a technician if Brian was affected by the genetic destabilization. The technician tells Peter to ask Nicholas, but Peter refuses, saying that Nicholas is too much of a risk. Suspicious. Elsewhere, the assembled Warpies cheer as Kurt finishes his medical exam in his underwear. As they filter off to bed, Nightcrawler talks to Nicholas about the destabilization. Nicholas tells him that Peter believes it's some kind of enemy attack. Kitty asks why Kurt is being affected if he wasn't originally at the facility, to which Nicholas suggests that Kurt may be recovering as the symptoms are intermittent and the tests all gave normal results. Kitty, clearly not buying it, asks Nicholas's permission to run a simulation. She uses the simulation to ditch her guard static and do some independent investigating. Back at Braddock Manor, Farron struggles with microwave cooking and Widget shows up again, yelling about sentinels before vanishing. Not ominous at all. Then, back at Cloud Nine, Brian wakes up to find himself strapped to a number of machines. He rips off the devices and charges at Peter, who points him to Megan, lying unconscious in a stasis tube. Peter says Brian's responsible for her grave condition, which convinces Brian not to kill him. Kitty watches from a vent as Brian gets manipulated until she's shocked unconscious by a warpy called Ferret, who delivers her to an RCX agent named Luke. Subsequently, someone who looks like Kitty reports back to Kurt that everything's fine, and Peter's a super great guy after all. We'll have to wait and see whether Kurt believes her. We conclude where we started, in space, with the Phoenix Force telling Rachel it must return to being just a force and not a sentient being. As it bids Rachel farewell, calling her the one true phoenix, it transports her back to Earth. As Rachel looks down on the blue orb, she feels clarity for the first time. Memory is intact. No Ahab programming. Finally, after all this time, she knows who she is. And it looks a lot like Dark Phoenix. Dum dum dum. So Allison, we'll come to you first with some first impressions of this issue. I'm very curious, which sort of dynamics particularly interested you about this story, if anything? What are you particularly eager to talk about? Uh, well, funnily enough, we were sort of talking about science before, but what really struck me when I started looking at it was the misinformation, disinformation uh, Okay, yeah. And the fact that you've got, you know, Captain Britain thinking that he's punching the Fury and actually punching Megan. And then the whole, you know, that sort of uh, plays out over the next couple of issues. You know, we realize that Nigel is trying to manipulate him into using his strength by giving him basically disinformation and telling him, you know, things that are happening are happening because of this enemy that he wants to basically point Brian like a gun at this common enemy. And swear to God, you know, resonances with January 6th, all this kind of ways that people can be pointed and their their anger got up because they think they are seeing something, an enemy that is actually not there. So, you know, happens with uh, within mis misinformation around vaccines, but it also happens with very, very similar tactics being deployed in other sort of political realms. Yeah, That's... I mean, we haven't talked too much about kind of the political, I don't even want to sort of say, well, yeah, I mean, it's a political allegory. I just feel like it's sort of nebulous in this arc. So I'm just almost hesitant to call it that because it is like a government bad and they're sort of linked to religion. <laughs> and I don't, we're going to have to talk about the conclusion of the arc when we get to it. Yeah, I love that though as a theme, like misinformation, because that definitely runs through the comic. And I have been liking what he's been doing with, you know, it's pretty 
pretty clear that Peter's not a good guy, but his sort of overall plan and the sort of components of the plan have been coming together in some, you know, ways that build tension that I think are effective and stuff. And I do like that about about this overall arc. But um Mav and Andrew, how about how about your first impressions? I'll come to you first, Andrew. How are you feeling about this one? Yeah, I really like that idea of um disinformatia uh, and how it's manifesting in this story. To me, I, I, and I could be way off on this, but I read that very much as a sort of um, British comics ethos mm-hmm. uh, coming out of sort of like the 2000 AD mentality of the government mm-hmm. is you know corrupt and convoluted and can't be trusted. I, I think it's nice to see that blurring of the boundaries between good and evil. I think it creates some dynamic storytelling opportunities. I still find it a little jarring within like, you know, X franchise characters where that, that style has not been used, but I think there's a lot of potential to it. So I'm kind of on board and hopeful. Yeah, I think admittedly, I think that's where I come across as being confused by it because the members of RCX who are not Peter are sort of allies, but actually not because they're shitty too. So like in superhero comics from the States, it wouldn't normally be like that. We would have a little bit more black and white than that, but it's like most of the people in this story, with the exception of the members of Excalibur and you know the warpies and not even all of the warpies are pretty terrible and then i don't anyway (laughs) we're going to talk more about the conclusion so we probably will come back to that but i I think that that was a really apt point yeah well and you do have what's his name mr jordan suggesting that you know nicholas could have some insights and i keep going back and forth between wanting to call him peter but um peter yeah yeah, shutting him down, saying, no, he's brilliant, uh, but naive of matters of security and far too trusting of Excalibur's good intentions. So you sort of get the sense that it's basically Nigel puppet mastering the conspiracy behind the scenes and everybody else is just following orders. Yeah. As we know, not a good plan. Yeah. Mav, how are you feeling about this one? It's fine. I think what makes this one work for me is that Alan Davis is one of my favorite artists. That's That's really what it is. Because as far as the writing goes, the pacing in this issue is all over the place. It's an issue that probably shouldn't exist. Probably pieces of it should have been parceled out over the last three issues and the next two at different points because fundamentally... I learned nothing here. If, if if you go back and read it, like <laughs> like literally there's no actual storyline progression. It's interesting. Like you see some interesting stuff, but like Brian is being misled by the bad guys, which, okay, that's going to be true next issue. And it was, you know, I, I mean, yes, we joined in the middle of his fight, but the fight start last issue. That's like the only real storyline progression is that, Megan and Brian actually get caught. We find out that that they had caught Kylan. We knew that already. We find out they caught Micromax. We knew that already. They're manipulating Kurt. Yep, knew that. Manipulating Kitty. Yep, knew that. Like it's it's a lot of weird. Not really even putting the the pieces on the board in the right place because they were already there. It's just sort of trying to like sort of deepen our understanding of things. And I would have rather those been in retrospect, I would have rather those been like sort of parceled out throughout the rest of the run, especially since knowing now, which I did not know then that we don't have much Alan Davis left for us, right? Like this is, we're running out of issues and it feels like almost a waste, but I don't hate it because there's been, you know, there's been issues where where I'm like, I hate this issue. That's not one of the, that's not happening here because like I, I just sort of read it and went, oh, okay. I mean, we're still here. It's weird. Like I don't feel like I have a deeper understanding of character or plot from just this issue but it fits in 
and you know hey she's got the red phoenix costume that's neat <laughs> i mean that's that's like that's like what i like if, if i look at it cynically that's what i take from it you know everything else that i'd have everything good i'd have to say about it is me adding things me adding things from knowing what happens in the next two issues yeah, I, I knew it would be a trouble doing our format for this story arc yeah. because it works so much as yeah. an overall story and like the individual issues aren't necessarily standalone things in this story arc. And yeah, it's a challenge to talk about it an issue at a time. Look, look how many times on this podcast I've already been like, but we're going to talk about that more next issue because, we, yeah, mm-hmm. you know, it's like gotten really tangled. Yeah, it's like, I mean, like reading it, it's like, oh, OK, he's doing a thing. I get it. Yeah, it's there, but like I only know that because I've read issues sixty five and sixty six. <laughs> you know, like like there, it's going somewhere, but like it's not there yet. That's the weird thing. Oh yeah, I know. Well, I'm just I don't know. I'm so obsessed with like the first three pages with Rachel of this comic that I would forgive mm-hmm. everything else that happens in it because those pages are beautiful, 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 and yes. they live in my soul. And I want to spend some time talking about the individual images oh. there. But before we get to that, mm-hmm. I want to talk about well, genetic. Just, yeah, sorry. Well, Matt. Well, as an example, in your um, your recap, you said, and then Widget comes in here and you know starts screaming about Sentinels. Mm-hmm. No, he didn't. Widget came in and started screaming. You don't know why he's screaming. I know why he's screaming. You know why he's screaming. And the problem is you you can't do the recap without saying why he's screaming because it oh. wouldn't have made any sense <laughs> yeah. because in the context of this issue, it doesn't make sense. Sentinels are never mentioned. He is screaming about Sentinels. I mean, like, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, 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 like if you actually are reading it in real time, you know, 30 years ago, you go and there's widget and widget's gone. Well, widget does that sometimes. So, okay. Well, I mean, come on, is that not the most Excalibur thing ever? Right, right. That's like weird, unexplained widget stuff that are not going to get resolved for many issues. Right, widget does that sometimes, and it's okay. That's what I mean. It's like, it's not new. It's just, it's not bad. It's just, yeah, that's... That's what Widget does. Widget shows up, says something, <laughs> says something weird, and then disappears. That's that's the Widget character. That's why you know we made a joke about it for the show. Like we we named the show after something Widget said, and then didn't explain it for twenty episodes because that was like funny to us because that's what this book does. So you know more of that. <laughs> oh so cynical today. All right. I don't know. I don't, but I don't. I don't mean it. I don't mean it in a bad way. I mean, yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. Like no, a, I understand. I, I don't. I don't know how to talk about it more without saying like I know why. I I know why Widget's screaming about Sentinels. You guys know why Widget is screaming about Sentinels. But like, given the format of our show, I can't talk about that for like three more episodes. We can, we can talk about how it is building tension and intrigue yeah. for future storylines. He's right. seeding that in a Claremontian yeah. way. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm putting a positive spin on it. No, it's actually even better because Claremont uh, Claremont will often why why Widget does that is more planned here than I think a lot of Claremont stuff is. By his own admission, Claremont did a lot of let's throw let let's throw some balls out there and see what I can develop out of them. This is clearly a plan that will pay off by the end of the arc, as opposed yeah. to you know, two, three, 18 years down the line, which is kind of what Chris did sometimes. 
So this is different than that. I just don't know how to talk about it. That's all. <laughs> like, it's like, yeah, it's like, okay. Well, let's, let's talk about it by, by talking about genetics a little bit and <laughs> <laughs> unraveling what the storyline here is really doing in terms of some of those mutant metaphors. Cause it's not something we actually talk about that much in the context of Excalibur, because like the mutantness of the characters is not as big a factor in this book as it was in the other X-Men comics in the line at this time. But yeah, let's like, take a step back and talk about that and I know you're going to have thoughts about it Allison so the question that I really wanted to put to you was about the significance of that genetic factor of the mutant metaphor you know the idea that mutants are superheroes because of their genetics and how this factors into the ways that they're treated differently in the X-Men universe and this often comes up in stories involving them having to do with you know what is the nature of you know being <laughs> a mutant what is the nature of sort of being enhanced is it an enhancement you know is it a burden what is it can we demutate people can we get a cure for being a mutant mm-hmm. all of these things always come up in this universe in part because of that conceit of genetics and yeah i'm just sort of wondering about your take on it you know do you find that an important or interesting aspect of the metaphor very, very much so. Are we allowed to do MCU spoilers here? <laughs> yes. Sure. Yes. Yeah. We are we are assuming no, everybody has been... this show hasn't seen all of the MCU. <laughs> and this will be coming out in a few weeks anyway. So, so spoilers for Ms. Marvel. Uh just go and go and giving you time to turn off. Um yeah, obviously we've got um the first <laughs> direct mention of mutation at the very end of this Marvel series, TV series, I should say. And so what does that do to change the dynamic in the MCU as opposed to the MU for what makes a, you know, what gives somebody powers and specifically like why it would make the general public afraid of them? Because we've had, you know, all the way along, you know, basically, more or less, give or take some Sokovia Accords, the Avengers and Assorted Hangers-On are adulated. You know, they're good guys, they are seen as heroes, and the mutant metaphor is, you know, kind of down at its its base, heroes being framed as villains. So what what is it that, you know, there's a the quote from Joss Whedon's run where Nick Fury says to Cyclops, your boy Magneto, right? Like, anybody who is a villain kind of gets lumped in, and this is how prejudice works, like, an entire group gets tarred with the same brush for, you know, crimes of one or several members of that group now or in the past. So I think that's, you know, one of the the sort of really interesting things about the mutant metaphor is that it lumps everybody together as opposed to, well, you got your powers from gamma rays and you got yours from, you know, radioactive spiders and you are not the same person, even if you might team up on occasion. So you have all kinds of things that you can talk about sociologically, politically, because of that very basic fact of people who are, you know, biologically related, kind of, not really, but but they are a group. They're an identifiable group. Yeah. And I mean, we'll just signpost that one of the common critiques of that is that it's a messy handling of race because in some ways it's making the concept of race real through genetics, which, you know, race mm-hmm. is a social construct and a social concept and all of those things. And that is one of the reasons why the mutant metaphor sometimes fails at those discussions because it can do exactly. so many interesting things, but then like, yeah, that genetic component of it is is messy. Let's put it that way. When, 
when handled correctly, that works though, because yeah. So the the flaw in the mutant metaphor in diegetically inside of the world of Marvel Comics, the flaw in the mutant metaphor is their world has decided that they are going to hate and fear people because of their genetics, which they cannot see. Right? Somehow, yeah. <laughs> somehow the um, somehow the random guy in New York has decided that he's going to be afraid of of Kitty Pride, but not afraid of Spider Man. Somehow, like they don't know, but like just do, but like, oh, you're not a mutant. All right, then I guess you're okay. You know, you know. Oh, the Hulk's not a mutant. Oh, well then, fine. Sure, he's throwing a building, but you no, know, <laughs> he's one of us. And like, it, it, it's it's a logic that doesn't make sense. And when written correctly, then you can say, okay, yes, this doesn't make sense. It is it is nonsensical that you are okay with inhumans and altered humans and eternals, but not mutants. That's a nonsensical thing for you to to, to feel exactly the same way that it's sort of nonsensical for you to be okay with white people and latino people but not black people so yeah sure uh, the problem is it's not always taken that way because these books largely aren't be written, being written by geneticists and they're largely not being written by cultural theorists they're being written by comic <laughs> book writers right so like and so like it, it they're is, largely is, being written by white people so which is always a yes. factor yeah it is yeah it, it is a complex weird conversation on the other hand you know we have this show and this is what we do right so <laughs> like, like does it make sense not particularly but i think there are interesting ways you can go with it again spoilers fast forwarding 30 years of comics into modern day where they're doing the Krakoa stuff, which Anna loves. Um, <laughs> but, um, but there's a, but there's a weirdness there where um, for what I think are actually mostly uh, copyright reasons and group editing reasons, we've decided that Franklin Richards isn't a mutant anymore. And so Franklin Richards is, Oh, you're not a mutant now. Um, you never were. And so Professor X is like, and since you're not a mutant, you're not my friend anymore. I don't love you, kid. You, 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 you used to Stupid be great, kid. but we don't like you anymore. 15 year old boy, you go to hell. It's, it's, it's real rough. Right. Um, and, and, but like, the, but like, that's the interesting thing, right? It's literally like a, you are no longer one of us. You are not black enough, not Jewish enough, not like, like that's, that's the moment that it actually happens. Now, was it done for that reason? No, it was done because they were trying to keep group lines, like uh, editing group lines clear. And they didn't want Franklin to be too affected by whatever was happening in Krakoa because the logic of what happens in it when they're, when they're like, oh, well, Franklin is no longer a mutant and he doesn't count. Whereas there are other characters who literally were depowered mutants Franklin gets depowered that's why and there's literally depowered mutants all over the place because that was the storyline from the decimation that like it, it is wildly inconsistent but racism's wildly inconsistent like that's kind of why maybe it does work it's wildly inconsistent and it's usually theories made by people who don't understand the genetics that they're being afraid of. Like that's, mm -hmm. that's what racism is. I was just going to footnote to say, um, Jay Edidin has like really good thoughts about um, the mutant metaphor uh, for like disability and you know, that it's, it's not obviously ever just uh, about race. It's about uh, sexuality. It's about disability. It's other, choose your own adventure. 
Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. I was going to say, I think one of the other pieces that, that can work, and I'm not saying it's working here at all because I don't think it is, is perceiving that genetic argument holistically as a post-human anxiety, something yeah. that we've talked about before. The idea that they're not threatened by specific mutants, they're threatened by the idea of the next chain in evolution mm -hmm. existing. Uh, and them not being a part of it. But that's not in play here, I don't think. Like, you could maybe read into it in a few places in the lab. But um, yeah, I, I think that's the only way the holistic thing really works. And even if it did, I would argue that this is what's called hat on a hat. Like... <laughs> The the unstable bodies of the mutants is already established and hasn't really been explored since Claremont came on. Claremont was much more interested in the queer and racial allegories. Mm -hmm. um, so, like, I, I think through mutanity alone, you could explore that those sort of genetic metaphors. So introducing this this new genetic complication, I, I feel like it's maybe I don't know unnecessary. But I don't know. I'm I'm, I'm sort of self inserting ideas into the story here that that maybe isn't fair to Davis. No, I think it's but fair. Like, I think it's wholly unnecessary because that's why we haven't talked about it again. And yeah. I mean, this it happens here, and then no one cared again. It's been thirty years. This does not come up again. So it, yeah. So yeah, that's yeah. definitionally <laughs> unnecessary. <laughs> and is the destabilization really happening to the mutants, or is it mostly the warpies and kind of Captain Britain because they are related to Jasper's warp? I'm not sure right. it's clear because. Like, because you know, spoilers. Davis is going to leave the book in three issues, and then it's just not, I, like I, I don't. It, it's not clear to me, and I've read it. So yeah, I know it's never been clear to me either. And I, uh, I don't want to do that thing where I'm like writing a different story <laughs> or do that all the time. But I just the thing that always bugged me about this storyline with the genetic destabilization aspect. I think it's kind of a cool concept that you know, if Peter's just making up this whole thing and this is all part of like a manipulation thing because it's like, oh, genetic destabilization, this does seem like a thing that would fit within this universe of mutants and this and that. And then it's just a huge MacGuffin and that's sort of like that a cool, that's a cool narrative conceit. I like, because that's effectively what happens with Brian and Kurt and Megan and all the people in the stasis tubes. They're not actually sure. destabilizing. But also I would have really liked to see Kurt reacting to the news that he might be afflicted with genetic destabilization, especially because there's the really intriguing detail of as you start to destabilize, you revert to human. And right. that was brought up like two issues ago. And then like the first time I read this, I was like, oh boy, we're going to be going somewhere with this. Kurt's going to have to deal with that. And like, he's going to, what does that mean? What does it mean for Kurt to quote unquote revert to human, which even that whole concept like of reverting is strange for a character who's always been different. And, you know, there's been some later stories that dealt with it in different ways, but I just really was missing that from the story, even to not have that happen, but just to have him thinking about what that would mean because he doesn't even think about it at all he's got no reflection about this genetic destabilization threat at all and it's so strange like it's such a strange absence from this story to me yeah he's he's living his best life and i think <laughs> I, I, I this is stupid but that scene where he's in his underpants in a lab <laughs> being studied and told how awesome he is surrounded by people uh -huh. and he's got the biggest smile on his uh -huh. face i'm like yeah that's kurt's happy place that makes sense that he'd yeah. be super into that yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I want to talk a little bit more about that scene specifically, but let's, I, yeah, I wanted to stick on this destabilization thing a little bit. And like, I'll come back to you with it, Allison. Like, do you find this an interesting storyline? Like, is the concept of genetic destabilization an interesting threat for these characters to be facing? Uh, it's sort of what you've already been saying, which is that I'm it's I'm only interested in it insofar as it uh, affects our characters. Like, how do they mm. feel about it? It as mm. itself, yeah, I could take it or leave it. I think it's you know it kind of resonates with the later you know idea of a cure, a mutant mm. cure, um, and how 
extraordinarily awkwardly that was handled in in the X-Men 3 movie. But, you know, all of those kinds of things about what happens when you are no longer the thing that was you know, your identity is bound up with. Like, you could do some cool stuff yeah. with that. But as as you're saying, you know, Kurt doesn't go there. <laughs> Nobody really goes there. I mean, it's it's like they have an illness and they're looking for a cure. And that's a different thing from they are being undone in some core of their identity. Yeah, because, I mean, the academic in me wants to go to, like, uh, Scott Bukatman's idea of mutant bodies and the torment of the mutant body as he calls it and how the biggest threat to mutants is the instability of their own bodies and the ways that that's a metaphor about adolescence but also about persecution and otherness and that's right here you know the idea that the greatest threat to a mutant is you know not a person with a laser gun or something it's the unstable nature of their own bodies and that's a very intriguing storyline which again we're going to get you know right around the same era with the legacy virus which is not I was going to say that that was Lobdell and it was what it is but yeah but it's an interesting it's an interesting concept though I think it matters I was was gonna bring that up so this is um I was just checking this is April 1993 cover date right the Mm -hmm. legacy virus storyline start in February of 1993 yeah so it's concurrently going on through all the x titles Except for this one mm-hmm. right now. Yeah. <laughs> like, it, like it is literally, um, this is a flaw of the fact that at this point in time, because of decisions made to placate Chris Claremont, who no longer works there, Excalibur's not under X-Men group editorship, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's off on it's doing its own thing. And as we get through this storyline, Excalibur is going to become more and more a part of the X-Men universe. So this is no longer, you know, the legacy virus storyline will become a part of Excalibur, but it's not right now, right? Like, so I think that editorial mandate has to matter here too, right? Like, yes, I get that, like, the destabilization and legacy virus are doing different things, but realistically... Both of those stories can't happen in this universe at the same time. They're just not. It would be too weird for the reader to be trying to deal with them both. So they had to make a canon decision. And obviously the legacy virus is going to win because it's the one that people remember. Like the, the legacy virus storyline goes from 1993 to 2001. So that's a long that's a long time for it to like, yeah. stay in there. So, so yeah, I think and we're, we're going to have too. a bunch of it in Excalibur too, like mm-hmm. uh, in the Ellis. I don't want to spoil. Yeah, there's going to be future yeah. stuff. Yeah. Immediately after that, or shortly after that, you've got uh, Dr. Kavita Rao coming along with the mutant cure, right. hope, mm-hmm. um, and the idea that what does that mean when when you are being undone, but also when you are being treated as a disease, right? There's like a, a quote where uh, Wolverine says, you know, she called us a disease. Uh, I'm so mad I can't even sheathe. And that <laughs> oh, idea of... Such a <laughs> gross a, line, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's a really, really gross line, but it's like, yeah. Um, that's his reaction to being called a disease. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you could argue that's not what she was saying, but the question of what, what are powers, you know, and especially if you, again, are bringing in disability um, and the idea of identity being tied up in something that some people might consider a disease, like, you know, autism coming back to vaccines again, um, being framed as this, you know, horrific thing that is caused by whatever 
you know, cause you imagine has created it and has made otherwise healthy people into something different mm -hmm. than they should be. And then you got the autism rights folks saying, uh, no, I'm autistic and that is who I am. Don't try and mm -hmm. cure me. Mm -hmm. You know, well, this is a part of my identity. Mm -hmm. And these storylines are happening just for contextual sense. The, that storyline's happening at a time in which, it's still happening now, but it was a time in which conversion therapy was very much a real thing in America. Like there were a lot of people actively trying to cure homosexuality, which was a serious fight and a serious problem that, um, I mean, thankfully right now it's mostly just French groups, right? It still exists. But in 1993, there were people taking very seriously the idea of, oh, thank God, now we can cure the gay as though that were a thing so this was it, it was a it was a contextually different world than trying to read it in 2023 well i mean it just makes me think about how tragic it is that there's so little trans representation in the x-men universe given what an apt metaphor that would be in the context of the current cultural climate of trying to erase people's trans identities although we do have one new character finally <laughs> like trans x-men but uh but yeah uh still like it's it's both uh interesting and depressing the way these kind of same things keep <laughs> cycling through in various eras i have definitely been having the feeling lately that like is this what getting old is like just watching the same culture wars happen every 10 years and yes anyway that's taking us i know I'm, it's taking I'm, us I'm, down I'm, a dark I'm older road, than you i'm older I than know. you yes this is what getting old is <laughs> welcome it's not the best one of us not one the of best. us I know. I don't mind wrinkles and stuff, but I could do without repeating the same culture wars. But um, let's talk about something happier, um, sort of, which, you know, there's a lot of, I, I'm saying sort of only because there's a lot of trauma involved, but happier in the sense that it's a wonderful bit of storytelling, which is those opening pages with Rachel in the nine panel mm. grid, retelling her story so gracefully. I just kept thinking about, wow, you could put this in a storytelling class, like... <laughs> Have like Excalibur, what is it? Excalibur 53, the one where we have Phoenix narrating the issue so clumsily versus mm. Alan Davis doing this with like three pages of nine panel grids so gracefully retelling Rachel's story and so concisely retelling her story and so evocatively retelling her story. I love these three pages so much. And yeah, I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about it as comic scholars talking about the form of comics here, you know, how he's using juxtaposition and page layout and repetition in this sequence to make the story so evocative. And maybe I'll ask us a comic scholar question about nine panel grids first, because <laughs> this is something that gets very much codified by Watchmen. It was so mm -hmm. strongly yeah. associated with that now. Watchmen did not invent this technique, but again, just so strongly associated with that Abe now Gibbons and subsequently. Nine. Yeah. Before, before 1985, we counted from eight till 10. That was just it. Mm -hmm. we, we skipped nine. <laughs> yeah, I know. Exactly. Didn't exist. <laughs> didn't exist all Dave um, Gibbons mm -hmm. <laughs> well, I'll jump in with that um, because what jumped out to me uh, about the first page was the center panel of Xavier's death immediately takes you right back to New Mutants 18 which was yep. uh, one of the most powerful panels I had ever seen in a comic and it is not a grid like this he does a full uh, two page spread across the top of Xavier being blasted back after his really powerful kind of sequence of hauling himself up by the curtains to try and yell to the to the army and they they blast him away anyway and that 
particular image of Xavier's murder happens in that issue. It gets done again by John Romita Jr. in X-Men 188, I think. And then we have it once again here. But neither of the the second two is a patch on the power of the first. Mm. Um, so as much as I agree with you that this is an incredible encapsulation of, of her entire life, it also reminds me of how when sometimes when comics eats its own tail and, and redoes things again and again and again, this isn't quite that, but you get diminishing returns, partly because it's, you know, you're doing it again and you're trying to strip mine the emotion out of something that has, that was powerful the first time, which is <laughs> days of future past in a nutshell, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it just got totally stripped mine for emotion. But yeah, I sort of, I wonder whether there is something lost in the cherry picking of these moments out of their original context. My, and this isn't a pushback to that, it's just like an, mm -hmm. an alternate way of looking at it, is that what really interests me about these three pages is the way the moments are composed. And I mean, that's why I was sort of getting at, trying to get us to think about nine panel grids. You know, the symmetry of a nine panel grid suggests a lot of interesting possibilities in terms of how panels relate to each other. You know, we think about theories of how we read comics. You know, many scholars, you know, such as Barbara Pastema have suggested that we don't read comics in a linear fashion. We read them in sort of, a, you know, S curves and we weave through pages and that kind of thing. So there can be relationships between the panel at the top of the page, you know, the, the upper left and North American comics and like the bottom right and not just panels that are right next to each other and nine panel grids because of their symmetry you know lend themselves really well to those kind of subjective connections and those kind of very deliberate compositions because it's such an overly stylized way of presenting moments like there's no busting out of panels here everything is very gridded but because it's so gridded we really feel the art of juxtaposition so when we look at what's in the center panel of these three pages so we have Xavier getting getting shot in the wheelchair on the first one. In the second one, we have Madeline and Scott and Nate. And then on the third one, we have Necrom. So it's like these three focal moments sort of of the story. And you can question whether those are the most appropriate moments to put in, in the center of each of those pages. But, you know, Davis is making his own choice about sort of what moments matter, what moments are important to the kind of way that he's going to be retelling Rachel's story. So that really interests me. And I'm also really interested in the moments of repetition. You know, we get multiple team shots and specifically we get Rachel sort of looking out at the team, you know, beginning with the second panel in which it's Scott and Jean from her reality handing her the Banff doll. We have her sort of welcomed into the team and her reality in the panel after that. And then on the next page, we have, well, the next two pages, we have a number of team shots, which are really interesting. You know, we have the team shot of the, you know, John Romita Jr. era X-Men, you know, deja vu where she's being welcomed onto that team but you can see kind of the gritty atmosphere there nobody's smiling in that image and then on the next page you have Excalibur and everybody's laughing and you know you can think about that as you know the tonal contrast between J.R. Jr. Uh, era of X-Men versus Excalibur but I love that panel too because he's not adding words to that panel all we see is Excalibur laughing are they laughing with Rachel or are they laughing at Rachel and there's a number of panels like that that have a wonderful tension in them because he hasn't given us captions to telling us what to think and feel. And yeah, I just, I could break down this whole sequence. I think it's just a beautiful, beautiful sequence, but I'd love to hear other people's thoughts about specific moments or aspects of it that they thought were effective. Andrew and Matt, do you have any particular ones that you would like to speak to? Uh, the layout of the nine panel grid, you mentioned, you know, we joked about it, you know, Watchmen inventing the number nine. Another function of it and the reason 
I think Watchmen does this largely is it it is provocative because it is so standardized mm-hmm. but the standardization of it makes everything seem very ordinary what I mean by that mm. is it, it gives it the feel of reading the comic strips in the newspaper except for even more so because even if you read a newspaper page that has comic strips on it you know for the newspapers that still exist in 2023 2022 what year is it wow um for the, <laughs> but even if you even if you do that like you still end up with variation in panel sizes like you know artists will make small variations in order to highlight what is important to them yeah. and you pointed out what's in the center of the page and you pointed out the idea of we you know we take in pages all at once but when you do a nine panel grid a regular Dave Gibbon style nine panel grid, what you end up with is every moment that you represent, no moment is more important than any other yeah, because they yeah. all are given the exact same amount of real estate. They are all given, you, you functionally have to like use your layout the same. It forces the storytelling into a sort of regular mold such that, you know, it should be amazingly shocking to see Xavier killed or to see, you know, Jean's grave or, you know, Jean, it, like these should be moments where Rachel or Ra- Rachel's like, oh, my God, this is the most important thing in my life. But it's not. It is just as important as when she got her first bath doll or when she met, mm-hmm. you know, when she joined the team or when her little brother was born. A life is a collection of moments. And I think the regularity of the, of that layout really serves that kind of concept of I am flashing back through the moments that frankly Alan Davis picked as the most important of her life, right? Like, you know, we could vary as to, like, I, I, I question whether the one thing that she's going to remember is, is war wolves, but you know, whatever it's, it's the world, <laughs> it's the world flashing between her, but, but, but you know, before her eyes and it gives you that, that appeal. Yeah. I, I, I mean, we haven't mentioned it, but obviously the, the big thing here is that it's narrativized from um, Rachel's perspective. Uh, I, I think the rhythm of it starts very nicely. The idea that, that each of these, like the second image, technically not the first one, suggests like a birth, like an opening of eyes or a dawning of consciousness. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that thread carries through that each of these moments is a subsequent rebirth or dawning of consciousness, because mm-hmm. these are these these moments that define some aspect of Rachel's sense of self and identity. Um, I, I think that's a very important piece to it. And I I think there's some cool elements with them foregrounding the hands and stuff like that. And I do think there's a little bit of a cinematic illusion. This is RoboCop. Paul Verhoeven's RoboCop from from 87. Mm-hmm. The idea yes. of seeing this series of snapshots directly from your perspective in front of you, um, which I think kind of does cool things in terms of putting Rachel in the sense of um, being a, a construct, being uh, sort of a pre-traumatized as a result of simple existence, which has kind of been a theme that has informed her entire comics career at this point. So I, I think there is a lot of subtlety happening here in terms of all the things that we've already been talking about. Um, I think Davis is making some absolutely brilliant little little nuances, um, which is really nice to see for him. Yeah, and I mean, even uh, again, this is another thing that we're going to be talking about on some future episodes, but it makes me think about the queerness of Rachel too and sort of concepts of queer time and, you know, the idea idea of uh, this is a big concept and we're going to come back to this but I'm just putting a pin in it for now but just the idea that time works differently because sort of your maturation is different because of social pressures and then you have this different kind of more subjective experience of time and the idea of Rachel as a time traveler and the way that that's woven into this story like this isn't a linear story that we have here Kitty is old and then she's young and then she's older again you know the same way that a nine panel grid you know as Mav said so well you know gives every moment the same 
uh, amount of importance that facilitates that weaving that I mentioned, right? Mm -hmm. You know, like we read it, you know, top to bottom, left to right. But when everything is very gridded like this, there's a lot of competition between the moments because they are all the same size. You know, there isn't like a panel overlapping that's sort of encouraging us to move in a certain direction. We are seeing all these moments in time at the same time, which we always do on a comic book page. But having it very regulated really emphasizes that effect of comics. And yeah, I mean, even when I think about the second page and how many different kind of moments in time and how many sort of births and deaths we're seeing there and that idea of Rachel as a non-linear being, it works with the idea of the phoenix. It also works with the idea of her queerness and just so many little things like that that are so nice, right? And I just particularly like in terms of moments, you know, her looking at Kate Pride and, you know, the focus on Kate's face and like it seems like such a loving gaze in that image and also just going back to the BAMP doll thing you know <laughs> she's a baby and like knows Kurt as like a doll that she plays with and then he becomes an adult person that she knows in multiple <laughs> different realities and there's just so much going on there that I think is done so wonderfully to make a point about how weird Rachel's existence is and yet for her it's normal and almost the normalness of that sort of the tension between weirdness and normality is really signposted again by that nine panel grid. I think this is just one of the greatest Rachel sequences we've talked about, you know, Excalibur number 50 or the fight with Galactus in the later issue being some of the greatest Rachel scenes. But for my money, this is this is my favorite, actually, Rachel scene from from all of Excalibur, actually, for just for how much rhetorical work it's doing with with the ways that it's arranging these moments of her life. Yeah, and the uh, the sort of psychedelic image of of Ahab it's funny because Ahab was not something that I read I had stopped reading comics by the time he was introduced I similar for me to like let's go fill in Wolverine's mysterious past I was never quite sure that I <laughs> appreciated the storytelling that got put in in those blanks but I was I was very curious when I first saw this and that particular panel obviously we've got evil syringes, you know, she's she's being conditioned with drugs. She's having this sort of hallucination of, of this character. Um, so it, it did drive me to go back and, and read his backstory and try and figure out what, what his deal was. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. It's like a blip, too. He's barely there. Yeah. They it tried was so hard to make Ahab happen, though, too. There's, yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. We're, we're going to have to deal with that eventually on this show, but like, mm -hmm. oh my God. <laughs> more of him, but... <laughs> Anyway, all right, I've said my spiel about those pages. So let's talk about a few other things. Let's kind of go rapid fire through some of the other things we have going on here. And just give me one second. I have to let my cat out of the room so that she doesn't keep banging on the door. One second. Andrew, do you remember that moment when, when Ahab was cable briefly? Yes. She doesn't like closed doors. Because they, they really had no idea what they were doing with this character. It's like, oh, nope. It's like, oh, see someone you rec recognize? Because Ahab was a character with no backstory and Cable was a character with no backstory. So they're going to be the same guy. No, we don't like that. Never mind. Just pretend we never no, said that. Work. Let's make him the baby. <laughs> Bad. Was, was Ahab even related to the Claremont run or did he kind of come along just afterwards? Because... Yeah, Cla Claremont yeah, wrote him in did. Uncanny X-Men Annual 14. Yeah. Okay. Completely irrelevant. Well. Throwaway person that just kept coming back. Like, they, people just like, let's try Ahab. Ahab again. Huh. Now, okay. now with more harpoons. What do we do with this guy? <laughs> the Moby Dick theme maybe wasn't the best for the 1990s comic scene. I don't know. <laughs> we were trying and it was just not happening. 
but maybe we'll, I mean, I might call this quest, this segment, you know, a very loose final thoughts because I don't know which things we're particularly interested to talk about. I do want to say a couple of things about the crew lifting weight scene, but um, we haven't talked about <laughs> the Brian thing and the Brian and Megan thing and our mileage on that. And, you know, mm. obviously the abusive aspects of the Brian and Megan relationship is something we've Let's talked do about. That one. That, it's probably worth mentioning here because there's stuff in yeah. it. In the, I mean, he's always abusive, but there is stuff in stuff does sort of happen as far as you know yeah. i said not much is it so the, okay for me what's interesting about that is the megan being transfixed and just letting everything happen issue mm. and yeah I don't love it <laughs> i mean it's it's almost the way labdell writes her that i've complained about and i've always said that you know davis and claremont didn't write her that way well, here she he kind of is, and I, I guess he's trying to do a thing because, like, you know, she's like, "Oh, well, the light has gone out," and, I, and now it's like, "Okay, you're beautiful, so I'm just gonna let myself get eaten by this fur person." <laughs> I, what the? I don't know what's going on. Like, she is never classic. Megan is, oh my god, Brian has a splinter. I will oh. kill everyone now in order to save him. Like that's yeah. that's what she normally does. Like she is normally so even when he doesn't need it, you know, he's Captain Britain, but she normally will absolutely jump to his defense you know if the wind is blowing too hard and here she's like oh <laughs> ryan's over there fighting i'm so distracted that like i'm just gonna let the bad guys win and it, i didn't yeah. love that but i do feel like he's trying to do some relationship progress here and it's weird because i i also know that he's not gonna get since i know the future i know he's only gonna go get get so far in the next three issues but i feel like he's trying to move their relationship forward just by the fact that they're having this moment. I just don't know that I like the direction. That's all. Yeah, I don't like it either. I would first like to say that I feel validated that that Mav used the term classic Megan to refer to <laughs> Claremont. <and Megan. laughs> well, I mean, but I, I would also say for me, the problem here, yeah. <laughs> the problem here is that, and I don't think this is intentional. This is really nitpicking and I apologize for it. But the framing of this thing is that Brian sees the fury, which traumatizes him, triggers him. And then he assaults Megan. The metaphorical relationship there, the idea that Brian's trauma is an excuse for abusing Megan, like that's their relationship mm -hmm. in classic Megan. And I really don't like that because we've grown out of that. So just, I think maybe like a very minor accidental misstep for me there. Um, I have mixed feelings about it. I mean, my, my charitable read of the fight scene and Megan's passivity is that she perceives something else going on because we had that conversation in the previous issues about Aura and right, for perceiving things mm -hmm. differently because you, you did bring that up Mav and then so my read of it was sort of that she perceives the warpies aren't evil so she doesn't really know what to do but that's not really given to us it that's very matter. much something I might be bringing to it so no I think I think that's what he's going for but it's not fair and also it wouldn't matter seriously if the wind blows too hard on, on Brian yeah, and Megan yeah, yeah, yeah. Out. like exactly. she, she doesn't care like it's weird and I need a thought balloon, you know, anything, mm -hmm. right? Like I need something to give me, I need, I need like some yeah, kind of grounding totally. because I don't get it. And it feels weird to me. Well, I mean, that gets to my other issue with it, which is that I understand that we are trying to work through some of the relationship problems with Brian and Megan, but it's just Brian working through things and never Megan, you know, cause once yeah. again, she's taken off That's the boards so that Brian mm -hmm. can think about the nature of their relationship. And I was like, well, what's Megan's? 
you know, thoughts about the abusive aspects of their relationship. <laughs> Could we like maybe sometime talk about that ever? But no, no it's just no. Brian having feelings. No. <laughs> well, we'll get some. We'll get some <laughs> opportunity coming up, but that won't be Alan. It won't be Davis. Yeah, that's true. Like, it's right. gonna be weird, you know. So, and she's largely a different character there, which um, yeah. we'll, oh, yeah. we'll talk about when we get to it. Did you have thoughts about this Brian Megan aspect of the of the plot, Allison? Um, well, I was just sort of noticing that she does. Um, you're you're totally right, Mav. Uh, on on the one page, but on the next page, she does spring into action. She she like headbutts yeah. uh, Fern. She what, sped to her sweetheart's rescue. So they they do kind of get there. But yeah, I think part of the problem is that you've got you know one of the which group are these guys? The cherubim, the seraphim. Yeah, yeah. I don't I don't know. Narrating <laughs> it. <laughs> And so, you know, there's absolutely no interiority to any of these characters. It's just like one of the victors gets to write the history. Yeah, yeah, that too. I mean, okay, so I just want to say my like tooth. This is going to be my kind of final thought, like about this Kurt scene. Okay, so this is like very textbook coming from me. But just what I really like about this scene is the way you have all the different gazes that, you know, Nightcrawler can appeal to really embodied in this scene. He's an ego ideal and a hero to, you know, some of these kids. He's also very sexualized. We get both Cerise and the female scientist in the background checking him out, right? We have the scientist kind of giving him a look too, which, you know, I'm not saying what look that is. Maybe he's also turned on. Maybe he's just interested in him and as a scientific curiosity. Maybe he's also an ego ideal. We don't know. I don't know what, what his thoughts are. But still, I think that, that was a really, I don't know, like one of those moments where like Alan Davis gets the character and, you know, it's just a really fun image for all the different things that that character can mean. You know, he's this hero to these other visibly different mutant kids, but he's also, you know, this sex symbol to certain other gazes and Davis gives us all of those things in a single image and I just that's like you know if I was just gonna like be like what's a representative image of Nightcrawler that would like that would be in my top 10 that panel for sure and he also has abs so many abs (laughs) (laughs) and he's really doing the showman thing 99 100 like he's so good (laughs) he's back in the circus so good and so unashamed like in his underwear too he's just standing around for this entire Mm -hmm. scene just there's no shame in any of these poses which is really well done obviously i could gush about that for another hour but i will refrain um other final thoughts stuff that we didn't get to we didn't talk about the phoenix stuff and whether we feel good about any of the resolution that's happening there i know we're so tired about talking about the phoenix but if we want to touch on it briefly we can yeah we did talk about it a little bit i mean it's weird because it's like a i'm leaving the universe forever this is it for me no it's not it's not like this it's 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 a meaningless (laughs) thing like the phoenix is like oh and i'm done now and you know not, not only is it not over forever it's not even over for the year 1993. Okay. <laughs> like, like yeah. it, it's not. And, and I, I guess like, I don't know if Davis knows he's leaving or not, but like the gall to be like, yeah, I'm just going to do the end of this Phoenix story. No, this is eternal. We're never getting away from it. We've had nine X-Men movies. Two of them are about this, uh, are about, you know, the dark Phoenix saga. Like, 
it makes no sense, right? So that's just the world we live in. And, you know, when they get rolled into MCU movies, we're going to do it again. And we'll probably get the same guy to write it again for some reason. I don't know. Like, it's, No, no, no. I'm not talking about it. <laughs> but, like, it's just, I, I, I had nothing really about, that wasn't my final thought. I, I just, like, we've, we've, it's more Phoenix stuff, you know? Insert your own backstory here, because that's the extent that we care about continuity anymore. I do like how Davis draws her. <laughs> as like yeah like i think the i think the yeah i look like gene because you know i gotta look like somebody and you know gene on fire that's what i'm going with i, I think that's a good look and i think <laughs> i think that that was retained for the white phoenix costume that will happen a decade later but whatever <laughs> like that's how i feel about it. all i would say about it is that i do kind of like the philosophical aspect of it okay. the conceit that the emotional intelligence of the phoenix is corrupted by rational intelligence i like that i, I think that kind of suits a lot of the you know pre-existing phoenix material as well that works for me be great if oh, okay. it was ever mentioned yeah. again <laughs> yeah. yes yes it would. i like that aspect if it ever of it, came though. up again sure yeah, I mean, my issue with it is just that, you know, we spent so much time griping about, like, the pro-life metaphors woven into the revelation about where the phoenix gets its power. And it's so hand-wavy here, like, oh, by, like, using your power less, it'll be fine. It's like, what? This is yeah. like this big revelation about she was killing universes that had yet to be born. She was responsible for murdering unborn babies. And now it's like, just take it easy, Rachel. Yeah. Like, that'll be fine. And I'm like, oh, it's a little <laughs> bit anticlimactic. Um, I mean, it's fine because I don't want to deal with the other thing, but, but still. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it is very moving on. Yeah. Andrew, did you have another final thought before I give Allison the last word? Uh, just a stupid one. Um, Brian's stupid in this issue, which is not uncommon. <laughs> while we're recording this, I can see my omnibus of Captain Britain. <laughs> and if you've seen the cover of it, it has his head flying in front of the logo. So he blocks out the I and the T in Britain. And it says Captain Brain. <laughs> and I'm like, no, you are not, sir. <laughs> random. <laughs> yeah, please Very random. remind me of that image so I can tweet it out. Yeah. <laughs> did, sorry, did you have another final thought, Matt? Yeah, well, yeah, because I, was, I, I wasn't even actually going to mention the Phoenix thing because I just didn't care. Yeah, anymore. sure, go ahead. Um, but um, yeah, I have two very short oh, ones. Oh, okay. Um, the, yeah, the first is Kitty's holograph. Like, okay, so she carries around a Danger Room program on a CD um, that she wrote previously. I guess she has a pocket somewhere in her leotard. I, I don't know how. <laughs> I don't know why she has it, and it's and it runs Universal Danger Room OS because, like, you know, it just fits in the warpy RCX Danger Room machine. So, sure, that part doesn't bother me. I mean, I'm, I'm willing to go there that, like, Kitty just has this disc on her. Fine. Um, what I don't get, <laughs> I mean, this is a weird, a weird conceit. I, I, you know, like, it's it's comic book science. People do stuff like that sometimes. Okay, fine. So she's just got this program that she wrote before. I'm fine with that. What I don't get is when she does it, she makes this very big deal about the fact that the costume is out of date because she used to draw change her costume all the time. Yeah. And she doesn't anymore. I've been reading comic books for 40 something years, people. <laughs> um, I'm, I do this professionally. I analyze media for a living. I teach other people to do it. I've looked at this picture for a long time and I don't know what the fuck's the difference between the two costumes. I can't tell. <laughs> and I keep okay. looking and it and yeah. it is not a mistake that I expect Alan Davis to make. Like 
something's supposed to be she's not in the sprite costume she's not in the i mean are the sleeves different am i supposed to be looking at like you know are the boots higher maybe maybe she's just shorter i don't know what the difference is but she's like oh it's different and i'm like what what happened what am i missing because davis does draw the costume a little different than ramita used to like he draws the top different so if it were me i would have thought oh it would have been really clever if he'd actually used the older x-men version of the costume but i don't think he is i think he's just drawing kitty twice and i don't know what i'm looking for i thought about that a lot (laughs) too mav and i my takeaway was that it was just kind of a little bit messy the way it was written like what we're supposed to be taking from it is that kitty feels like her current costume looks old because she's had it for so long so he's teasing kitty having a new costume moving forward that's what i came to after thinking about it for entirely too much time along the same lines that you did but it was a weird way to say it or communicate it if that's what it means okay maybe because 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 she says it she says perfect in every expect detail except the costume it's so okay okay so you think that she's just this is where she's realizing that she's had the same look for too long yeah okay maybe i guess i'm that, not that sure was, that bugged me a lot so that was that was and I, I was like i knew it wasn't gonna be a big deal i don't know if anybody has all, else has thoughts on it but I, I knew it wasn't gonna be a big deal it bugged me so much when reading this <laughs> going, what's what is she talking about you know she's also fighting ninja turtles there which is just just kind of a, a cute oh yes but, but um <laughs> thank you for mentioning that Yes. But my my other my other final thought is um Farron's in this issue, but we're out of time, so moving on. Yeah. I mean <laughs> we checked in with him for a little humor bit. I mean, what else can we do? Lucky At least talk. Yeah, that actually bothered me. <laughs> <laughs> but I was just like, I'm not going to get hung up on it. I mean, nope. there's enough other things that I like about this issue. Let's not think in, about it. It's just a comedy in, interlude. In order to, if we were to address it, that would mean like analyzing the Farron bits and, you know, we're out of time. So, yeah, sorry. Out of time. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Allison, coming to you for the final word. Anything from this issue that we didn't get a chance to talk about that you would like to talk about before we leave it behind? I guess I just, um, I love the, the sort of second to last panel of of Rachel Sands Phoenix like once uh Phoenix is like taken off and she's saying you know it's amazing I feel so alive mind is so clear truly free of Ahab Mojo's psychic programming and of the false memories that Phoenix gave me to hide my past and so that again to me trying to like fill in everything between where where I left Rachel and and what's going on here now you know, interesting that that they're kind of lumped together in a way that it's not just Ahab and Mojo that was bending her her psyche and ruling her life, but also the Phoenix. So the idea of of her finally actually getting clear um, and that maybe being a finale rather than you know the Phoenix is always reborn because that's the Phoenix's thing, you know. <laughs> and again, I'm sure we don't get to see Rachel enjoy this clarity for for too long because people just enjoy making her suffer. But this this moment um, yeah. of her being clear I really enjoyed yeah, yeah I did too and I mean the final page splash is so great and the symbolism of that costume you know bringing the phoenix mythology with her you know in terms of the connection with her mother and of course the feminist legacy that's always bound up in that symbol and that costume and that storyline but having the red costume you know which is associated with dark phoenix but her making it her own you know it's a wonderful sort of callback to the way she takes the hound costume and makes it her own you know she's taking on dark phoenix costume which is the same red as the hound costume and kind of making that her own i love that 
as a potential symbol. Yes. We don't we don't know that she's making it. We don't know that yet. She could be evil. She, she does have be. a very evil face. She's doing yeah. a, a very evil comics expression. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so if you're waiting a month to read the next issue, then yeah. you two think oh my that God. there's something. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. What is she doing? Is she evil now? No, she's not. No. She's fine. <laughs> yeah, I know. Like, I get that maybe it wants to go for that tension of, like, is she evil? But it's just all the scenes leading up to that are just so clearly, like, I've gotten myself back. I'm going to be good now. I'm going to do this and that. So, like, the idea of it being a tease of evilness doesn't really work for me. No, it seems much more the other thing. But Which, you know, is sort of a narrative <laughs> fail in some ways because that tension would be effective. But it seems like much more of a heroic moment here, for sure. Mm -hmm. I'm going to end just really briefly with just a nice little optimistic letter from the Swordstrokes letters page. So this is from Kayla Griffin. Dear Swordstrokes, in all the etchings and scrawlings I have viewed in my vast realms, I have never laid eyes on such a marvel of pictures and words as I have in Excalibur. Ah, I remember it well, the cold November day when my brother brought me to the village and the name Excalibur was shining from the window of a store. What is this? My mind riddled. Has the sword been found worthy of another? As I soon saw, it had. Until Arthur comes back from the dead and reclaims the sword, make mine marvel. Just just an altogether positive letter. I don't think yeah. they read this book. There's no sword. <laughs> I, I, I think that they meant it's to write that letter. To, I think they meant to write that letter to Camelot 3000 and it got lost in the mail. <laughs> Take Excalibur. Find a pool calm water throw the sword into it all right we will wrap things up um other than to say allison thank you so 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 much again for joining us it was such a pleasure to talk to you and before we go please remind our lovely mm -hmm. listeners of all the fascinating things you get up to which projects writing anything else would you like them to check out as soon as they get done listening to this podcast Gosh, um, I am finishing my dissertation, so that's not public yet. Um, <laughs> soon. But there, there will someday soon be, uh, be some sort of public-facing Shadowfox stuff. Um, meanwhile, um, I have a website, alisonhumphrey.com. It's got a blog on it, uh, very intermittent. I am on Twitter, uh, but yeah, probably probably my website is, is the, the closest. We can certainly link that in our show notes and all of our show advertising. And yeah, just... Thank you so much again. I enjoyed this conversation so much. Thank you. It was fabulous. Thank you so much for inviting me. Next, in one week's time, we will be discussing Excalibur 65, White Lies, Dark Truths, in which our storyline reaches its climax and Kurt and Cerise reach their own type of climax in private. In the meantime, if you liked wow. what you heard, please follow us. You knew I had. How could I not? How could I yeah, not? Okay, you know, I, I just, I'm sorry. We'll talk about it. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out the YouTube videos, which we've done for many of our earlier episodes you can find those on our website or the box podcast youtube channel as always if you want to chat with us about excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode let us know you can reach out via our website goshgollywow.com where we've got fun extras and via twitter at goshgollywow where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras thank you andrew and Mav, for another scientifically awesome conversation thank you allison for helping us investigate thank you all for listening and a special thanks to maximilian of thought music for our truly epic theme song Play us out.